Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmergi. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi, a show where I, as an ordained spiritual director, am not a rabbi, but nonetheless, as some of my rabbi friends say, am I that kind of rabbi? And I guess that was the whole purpose of making that title. That title came about when I was doing a Jewish men's retreat in Connecticut, in a place, the Isabella Friedman Center, which is a Jewish retreat center, wonderful one. And I, I work with a group of um, mostly Americans in something called menchwork.org, which you should check out if you have any interest. And uh, every year we do a retreat. This year we did it virtually for the first time. And next year will be the 30th anniversary of the JMR, the Jewish Men's Retreat. And during that, we do something called um, mishpacha groups, where we break out into smaller groups of men and we take the topics that are of that weekend and discuss them amongst ourselves and it's a kind of whatever, you know, you do in Vegas stays in Vegas confidentiality to it, which is important because men and emotional vocabulary sometimes don't go together. And it's sometimes better to encourage ourselves to actually find voice for all those things that particularly for men, I find, are pushed down. I remember, I'll always remember the first time I have four sons and my oldest son, when he was a little boy, he was playing, I think, ball hockey in a gymnasium at a community center across the street from the house. And he got hit by something, a stick or a knee or something, and he fell to the ground. And I was all ready to jump up and go and help him. And I looked at him and I saw this look come over his face where before he would have cried. But when this happened, he just sucked it back and got up slowly and kept playing. Now, for some people, that's a victory. For me, I felt more like it was a bit of a defeat. Not that I wanted him to cry over everything or as they like to say to shut men up, every little thing. Um, but I just felt like, what is he gonna do with that? Where does that go? How does he channel these pieces of himself? And in this time, this time that we're living in now, this slavery that we're in now, and the Pharaoh who is leaving us shortly, we think, um, there's a lot of feelings that are really hard to manage, and people are either pushing them down or erupting in them, particularly men. I would say one thing about the last four years in America that I've noticed as a Canadian, and that is that it is... A, an anguished cry of toxic masculinity, white toxic masculinity, to be exact, for me anyway. And I'm not accusing or pointing or doing any of that. I'm just trying to discern. As a spiritual director, the job is to discern the yearnings of people when they come to you. Not to prescribe, not to lecture, but to figure out what underneath whatever they're acting out is really what they're doing with themselves. And what kind of a relationship do they have? I always talk on this podcast about spirituality as a relationship issue, a relationship to yourself, to others, and to the universe. And that if we don't see ourselves in an ecosystem, but instead see ourselves in an ego system, we defeat ourselves in the pursuit of the magic of this existence.
And this is a magic existence. There's no doubt about it. And half of it is mystery. And so it should be. We can't answer everything. It's not worth it. We're not going to outsmart it. Do you know Dustin Hoffman on death? He wanted on his tombstone. I knew this would happen. <laughs> so that's not the point of the exercise to outrun death, to be smarter, to be stronger. It's to be with. And we really need more of that. One of the things that has helped me over the years, and I returned to it a little while ago, interestingly, is the Jewish practice of Musar. Uh, and I first read uh, the work of my guest. I don't know how many years ago it was first put out, Everyday Holiness, this book. Um, but I read it and I thought, wow, that's, uh, I was younger. <laughs> and I was like, that's really cool. It's really interesting. I, I'll remember that. Uh, and then I went on with things. Uh, and now I do a lot of work with people in aging and saging. And, and part of that is taking an inventory of one's life and being able to cultivate the wisdom that you can, you know, reap from your, your, your garden of life as you enter autumn. So I went back and reread Everyday Holiness by Alan Marinus. And uh, I went to see Alan uh, in Toronto when he spoke once years ago, actually. Uh, as part of reading this. Uh, and a friend of mine, Moja Silver, who's been on this program, um, I knew that he did Musar. So it was always there and I was always thinking of it. But now I actually find myself doing the curriculum, picking 13 soul traits. Um, this week uh, is honor. Um, and you're, you're to pick the ones that are going to give you a run for your money. It's, it's better than the ones you already think you've nailed. Um, and last week, I started last week, uh, this curriculum, uh, was gratitude. And, and it's just so fascinating to be conscious and aware of one of your traits. <clears throat> I was in a store in Brooklyn and, um, with my wife, we were trying to spend a weekend in New York city, but there were no hotels in Manhattan. So we ended up in a B and B of, of sorts. It was before Airbnb, uh, in Brooklyn. Orthodox, totally Orthodox community, but not the complete shtetl. It was an Orthodox neighborhood inside a larger neighborhood of others. And I remember I went into a, a, a Judaica shop, and there are many in New York City. So I went into the Judaica shop, and there was a man, in, a young man in a crisp white shirt, very well appointed. And we ended up talking about the Judaica, and then we talked about things. And I said, I can't help but notice that you carry yourself in a certain way, that you have a certain order. And he said, it's my Musar training. And I said, would you say it's working from the inside out or the outside in? And he said, it's both. But that sometimes you start out here and you move in there. And other times there's something in you that wants to come out. But it was a very interesting conversation. So all that to say that my guest today is the man who turned me on to all of this and is doing yeoman's duty in terms of spreading the Musar word. Alan, welcome to uh, Not That Kind of Rabbi. How are you doing? Thank you, Ralph. I'm doing well. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. I'm doing well. Gratitude, especially in this time when so many people are in one way or another not doing so well. It's a very challenging time. 
as you mentioned, the political realm, but there's also the health realm. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's a challenging time. So I'm doing, I look around, I say, okay, it looks pretty good right now. Then I give thanks because I'm well aware of what it could be. That's not the usual Jewish path, though. It's like, okay, this can't go on forever. What's going to go wrong here? Yeah, right. <laughs> I remember there's a joke about a waiter who comes up to a table in a Jewish restaurant and said, was anything okay? That's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm comfortable. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, Loku thinks he's nothing. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> um, so when you say thank God, we might as well just plunge in. What's God to you? Well, it's interesting because you talked about three relationships in spirituality, and those are the three traditional ones that Judaism points to, except you substituted the word universe for God. Yes. The, the, the relationship between a person and themselves, interpersonal relationships, and then relationships with, as one of my teachers says, the one above. And I think that... <clears throat> What you were saying about half the world is mystery. Well, certainly anything that I would call God falls into that half yeah. because it's a huge mystery. I have no way of conceptualizing. You know, I'm, I'm, this is impossible for any human being really to conceptualize. But there's a conviction that has grown in my heart that this can't all be random and accidental that the whole idea and the whole experience of this, as you said, magical reality of being a human being, very inconceivable to me on a rational basis that this just fell into place kind of by itself. And so that opens up the category of thinking, well, if it's not all just random, then there's something meaningful there. And then I can't conceptualize it. I don't even try to conceptualize it, but I have a, a sense that I cultivate in the same way as you were saying about cultivating inner traits, I steer away from the word belief because belief is kind of like, I don't know, you either do or you don't, it's binary. I believe in it, I don't believe in it. But when you're cultivating a relationship with an, somebody, something, some entity you don't really know very much about, you can still be doing a practice of investing and development in that area. And it's, for me, that's been a huge arc in my life because I come from a very secular background and, and even my own sort of education, everything very intellectual and worldly. And then it's been a very slow process of coming to a sense of appreciation for the one above who, who exists for me. So I find the one above <clears throat> for me was always problematic in that I, I, there's a duality to that. There's me and the one above. Mm -hmm. And I, I find myself attracted much more to the unity idea. So I have a student and I, she, and I use the word one above. I learned it from Rabbi David Nussbaum, who is a leader at the Beis HaMusser, the Musser house in Jerusalem right now, a 50 year old institution. And uh, he, he was one above. One of my students said to me, I can't relate to the one above. To me, it's the one within. Right. And I said, that's fine. 
<laughs> Standing's good. Yeah, that's fine. It's like, okay, I can't, if I could offer some sort of evidence to say, no, you're wrong and I'm right, I, mean, <laughs> I would, but I don't, I can't. And so the one within is fine with me. And I think that there is a sense of unity at one level, but there's, it's a disabling concept at another level. How so? Because it involves no aspiration. It involves no reaching out. It, it, it kind of gets rid of a certain sort of category, it collapses a category, which is not, to me, not very knowable, but it is an aspirational category. There was in the 19th century, when there was an active, very influential Musar movement in Eastern Europe, there were three branches and one of the leaders of one of the branches when his son was dying he left instructions which were no one was to eulogize him except one person and that one person could only say one thing which about him which was that he sought faith hmm. not that he had faith right not that he was the paragon of belief and faithfulness but that he made it an act of pro a practice in his life to seek faith. And he meant faith in God. And so there's a kind of reaching out that's very integral to, if you look at the prayer book or you look at any of the, you know, the prayers that we have, there's a great longing and reaching out. And um, I think there's something very positive in that. Well, there's also the idea that as, as opposed to either within or without, that God is everything and everything is God. That's getting pretty close to pantheism for me. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not entirely comfortable for me. That's interesting. Because yeah, I, I find myself, I, in, a, in an eco-spiritual way, I find myself, I, I think of the, of the Buddhist Diamond Sutra, where the facets as you turn them on anything that you're doing. So a piece of paper in this book I take this book of yours and I look at a piece of paper and this piece of paper is made of pulp and the pulp is made of a tree and the tree is made of a forest and the forest is made of the earth and the earth is made of a solar system. So to me, it's not really worship of nature. It's an acknowledgement for me that I am an integral part of the Shefa, of the abundant flow of creation and that I am literally stardust mm -hmm. so, as opposed to I um, I look for the spirit animal in something, you know, that's not my tradition, I don't go there, but I could, I guess. Uh, but it's really about this idea of kind of us being a molecular piece in the universal body of what we call God, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. Does that make any sense? Well, it does, but it's interesting because what comes to my mind is in your introduction, you talked about men in particular, not being very adept in emotional language. And what I find is that that's true and that there's a tremendous emphasis on the, on the intellect and on the knowing and on metaphysics and on coming, to, uh, sort of rolling over thoughts which have no real, um, they're mystical thoughts or they're intellectual thoughts, but there's an, the other way of knowing is the knowing of the heart. 
and it's a, it's a non-intellectual kind of knowing, which I think we are not just men, but I think we as a civilization have tremendously de-emphasized the knowing of the heart, which doesn't lend itself to categories and definitions, but to realities which you kind of know, and you know them in your inner core. Give me an example of that. Well, I mean, the easiest, most accessible example is love. Right. <clears throat> love is almost impossible to define. Um, if you look at what works when you're talking about love, you might point to a love song. And, but the, it's not the words, it's not the meaning directly. It has to be put in song form because the song speaks to your heart and your heart gets it. It gets, I know what love is. Don't ask me to explain it. Right. Don't ask me to define it. But I know it when, I, when it's in my experience. And that's, in a sense, a, a crude example because it's so big. But when it comes to other dimensions of life which have more subtlety to them, the same thing applies. That there is a different kind of channel of knowing that's going on simultaneously with intellectual knowing. And so to me, there's so much work to be done to open up the channel of the heart. When you talk about being a spiritual director, that's so much of what a spiritual director does, not coming from the intellect, not saying, you know, ideas and concepts and categories and all that, but rather opening up the channel of the heart and let's see what shows up. Let's see what comes into the room and be willing to stand at the edge and just say, come on in, what do you got? Yeah, and, yeah. yeah and, that, and you know that, and I know that. And so to me, I think that's a huge piece of the, the spiritual work of this generation is to, in a sense, speculate less and be more. Be. Be more. Absolutely. The presence issue, mm -hmm. the consciousness that li lies in total presence, mm -hmm. it can only be uh, understood by the act of doing. Mm -hmm. The doing of, of, of a conscious ability to say, I am here. Hineni, I am here. Mm -hmm. You know, people are always like, where's God? And the question isn't, where's God? It's, where am I? Right. Right. Am I available to what's actually already going on? The crazy, crazy that's going on in every moment of every life that we just walk right by because we're ruminating on the future or worried about the future or ruminating on the past. And so let's talk Musar. Let's okay. talk about. I thought we were. <laughs> Indeed, um, the uh, the talkless of, of Musar, the, the the how you do Musar. Um, there's an architecture to this. Maybe you could help people who've never under, uh, heard of it before to understand oh. what 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 it is. The uh, as you were saying about a gem with many facets, you can enter this this palace through many doors. But in the, since the title of your uh, podcast has to do with a rabbi, I can make a comment about um, sort of the Jewish world that I grew up in, which is that it has been a very despiritualized world. Uh, and I refer to our generation generally as spiritual orphans because most of us did not receive a transmission 
of Jewish spiritual teaching from the older generation, neither through parents or grandparents or rabbis or teachers. Most of us didn't. And most of us who feel ourselves oriented towards the spiritual world went on a wander and, and visited many, many different way stations, very few of them Jewish along the way, uh, because the pathways to our own tradition were not opened to us. And so there's been a great, to my sense of my own personal satisfaction, I mean, my life, it's been a great satisfaction to re rediscover and reinvent um, a Jewish pathway, an authentic Jewish pathway to inner living. And I mentioned that as a, a preface because the key piece of the architecture is seeing oneself as a soul. And because we live in such a, in a sense, despiritualized world and an uninformed spiritual world, then when I even use the word soul, I'm completely unclear about what I'm triggering in people's minds. Because what category are you already carrying around that I'm now invoking when I say soul? But in the Jewish thought uh, over centuries, a very specific uh, description has emerged. And there are two key pieces of it that are very relevant to this discussion. There are, of course, being a subject of Jewish thought, there are many opinions. <laughs> But, but almost everybody agrees that there are three dimensions to the soul. Each one has a name. Each one is a distinct dimension of a unity. There aren't three souls. We're not big on trinities. But, the, but there is one soul that has three dimensions and the Kabbalists say five dimensions as you have the higher, higher. But two of them are very crucial for understanding and responding to the question you asked because... One of them is called neshama. And the neshama is the pure, radiant, brilliant, holy essence of a human being that is there inherently. It's that aspect of the just the wonder, beyond wonder, because again, it's beyond intellect. Just to appreciate as the heart can, the scintillating radiance of a human being at the deep level, that just in that, in the fact of consciousness, in the experience, in the interaction, in the relationship. It's just, there's something that was so profoundly uh, pure and holy at the core of every human being inherently. And then the theological justification for that or the textual justification is that human beings are made in the image of God as we learn in the book of Genesis. So if we're made in the image of God, then there's gotta be something pretty uh, profound at the core, but we're not only that. And the other dimension of the soul that comes into play heavily in most people's situation is the dimension of soul called nefesh. It's interesting because both neshama and nefesh are translated as soul. So when you're on the English side of the transliterated or, or translated page, you don't get this distinction, but it's there tremendously large in the Hebrew, where there are different words, they have different meanings. The nefesh is the part of the inner life that contains all the individual characteristics of a human being. And we're different. Each of us has our own configuration. We all have all the components, the building blocks, they're universal. 
but the way they play out in each of our lives is distinctive. That's why you get a person who's prone to anger or a person who's prone to generosity or a person who's prone to miserliness or all the, all the variations in human beings tend to be variations on these same set of given themes which are described in Hebrew or called in Hebrew midot and the word means measures. So there's all these different inner measures that are playing out. And the analogy I use is that the neshama is like the sun. So there is this radiant light glowing within us all the time in the same way that no matter what the weather going on in the world, there's the sun, it's doing its radiant thing. It may be behind clouds, it may not be. Thin clouds, heavy clouds, you know, nighttime, but the sun is there. And the nefesh soul is like the atmosphere, the atmospheric conditions in our personal lives. What we have as available to us to do in this life is to do work on certain inner traits that are on our own personal curriculum. And by developing those traits in which we have not yet come to the fullness of our potential for growth in each of those areas, we can actually influence the weather system around the neshama. What we do is, a, and this is really the practice of Musar, a person identifies which inner traits they see are their stumbling blocks or their obstacles. Rambam Maimonides uses the word veils or partitions. These are the things that block, the things that get in the way of the light. And when the miser develops more generosity or the impatient person becomes patient or the cruel person becomes kind, when we do that work, then the light of the neshama, which is already there, is freed up to flow into our lives. And we become wiser and we become more insightful. And the light that flows into our lives flows through us into the world and we become a source of illumination into the world because we have freed up the, the gift of inner light that we've been given and we make it available into the world. Just wanna say one more thing. It's not all about becoming kind or becoming generous or becoming patient. It's about getting each of those traits in us calibrated correctly because some people are too patient. Some people are waiting. They're just going to wait. They're going to see what unfolds. They're just <laughs> going to, let's see what the universe, and meanwhile, they're doing nothing. And it's in their hands to do something. They have the tools and they have the responsibility, but I'm waiting, I'm waiting for, you know, something from heaven. And, and it's true in all the traits. So an inherent or an integral part of this paradigm is that the inner traits are all neutral. They have no valence of positive or negative. There are no virtues and there are no vices because you can do a lot of harm with generosity yeah. and you can do good with, with envy and with uh, anger. They're just, it depends on how wise you are in measuring out that quality in the right context. And so that becomes, that's really what the work of Musser is. So the Rachamim, is that, the place you should have on the spectrum of any of these soul traits? No, no, because Rachami <clears throat> is a soul trait we all have. We all have a capacity for compassion. And if you think of it as a spectrum, some people will be so compassionate 
by nature or because they cultivate it that they're almost at the extreme of the trait. And some people will have almost none of it. They're at the other extreme of the trait. And in the Musser paradigm, people are at the extremes and it doesn't matter which side of the extreme, that's an obstacle for that person. So if because, I'm studying compassion as, as part of the curriculum, what is this, what, where, from what I could understand, we're talking about being too much on the side of strength or too much on the side of kindness. Yeah, yes, I could. I right, and then you have to go, where is the right place for me to be on Correct. that spectrum? Correct. Is that right? and, is there, and is there a place where I'm not? So there's a gap between where I am and where I see is the ideal for me. And that defines the work I have to do. Just give an example about compassion. You know, you were mentioning the, the, the sort of turmoil in the United States over the last week with the attempted insurrection in Washington. At a certain level, one can have a kind of compassion for people whose experience was so damaging that they became available to the kinds of ideology that moved them. But does that compassion extend to not punishing wrongdoing? Not in my books. Right. Not in my books. That's not spiritual to me. That you have to have a social order that enforces the basic governing principles of the collective group. And so, but I, you could see where compassion could go so far that it becomes enabling. And, and the same, same when you study truth that, you know, there, I always remembered when I was, especially when we were younger, I don't know why, I think it's a part of youth you'd always have somebody in the group who would say, well, I just think you should always be honest with people and tell them like it is. And even then I would say, no, you shouldn't always be honest with people. What benefit does it have if it hurts them deeply that you decided to tell them to, to play their instincts and they weren't very good? It, you know, just be kind and say, and lie and say, that was great, you're great. Mm -hmm. Because somewhere in there, you mean that you're great. And I want to love you right now. Mm -hmm. You may have, and you probably know that this didn't go very well. I don't need to be the person to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. So every one of these soul traits has a lot of nuance to it. Exactly. And that's where I think the, the fact of this being essentially an 1100 year old tradition has had a lot of time to kind of sort out the nuances and point to the nuances and, and we are complex and we are nuanced as beings. And it doesn't do to just say, this is the rule, follow it at all times. There are so many contexts in which telling the truth is just not the right thing to do. Right. My wife and, is and others where, where you have to face truth, either within yourself or within a situation. Exactly. So yeah. to become a master of truth, not which is not to say truthful all the time, yeah. but to be the master of knowing which circumstance to, to bring it out in the right way, in the right measure. It's so profound to me that in Jewish thought, character traits are called measures. That's yeah. literally the word. And it tells us that it's not about the trait itself. There's no trait that's good or bad, but if you bring it out in the wrong measure, too much truth, 
truth can be a tremendous source of suffering for all concerned. So you've been doing this for a, a while. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I went to see you when the book first came out. Um, and I thought, you know, this takes a certain missionary kind of intensity to, to, to just start right at the beginning a thousand times. Yeah. What's Musar? Oh, here we go. <laughs> um, and yet there, you train people. What are you training them to do? I guess in the first instance, what we're really training people to do is to be introspective. There's a lot of people whose way of living in the world is very outwardly focused and they're not looking inwardly and not being introspective and not seeing that the spiritual path is an inner path. And to be able to look at yourself, as you were saying, bring truth to yourself, that's, that's a hard thing to do. And it, that requires a lot of training. And again, because our generation is largely spiritual orphans, we're crawling. We, we weren't raised to be acutely introspective and self-aware. That's really where it begins to understand because the, one of the things I appreciated when I first came upon the Musa tradition is that it addresses us as unique individuals. My experience of the Jewish world to a large extent was about a, an approach to collective, whether it was the community or the synagogue or the people or, you know, it was all about, we all do this at the same time in the same way. Now, the truth is we don't, but the, the ideology was, What's important is what we all do together. And Musa addresses the fact of the individual and the fact that we all have unique souls and we all have unique paths and unique journeys parallel. It's all the same kind of journey, but you may be working on truth and I may be working on compassion and somebody else is working on generosity and someone else, their issue is, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that's the way it really is. And so, to be able to understand what is my curriculum. What one of the great Musser teachers of the uh, early or the mid 1900s, he said, the purpose of a human life is to purify and elevate the soul. So it's not about getting the degree or the job or the house or the money or, the, you know, it's like, what is the, what is the laboratory we're in that we're all engaged in all the time. And we're all engaged in changing. We're all developing, we're all aging, we're all getting more experienced. Well, imagine if that was channeled purposefully. And that's mm -hmm. what the Musser teachers tell us. And so the, the, in, the, the initial part of the training is to become introspective. Let me say one more thing about that. There was a great Musar book published in the 18th century called Path of the Just, Misil Isharim by Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato. And he picks up on, on something that's in the Talmud, which is a progression of focuses. That the ultimate goal, as Judaism defines it, is holiness. And the Torah says, you shall be holy. And it says it in many ways, in many different forms. I think that's what a human life is for, is holiness. And that's what Rabbi Levinstein was saying, purify and elevate the soul 
in order to reveal the holiness within. And so the, the whole idea of this progression leads towards holiness. The starting point, the first step is what we might in the contemporary world called mindfulness. You have to have awareness. The, the word in Hebrew is zihirut, which comes from the root zohar, which means shining. The starting point and what we train people in is that it is possible to have a shining consciousness. And we know it, we know it from experience. So dull consciousness, you know, thick cloud consciousness, and then brilliant sun consciousness. And so that's the starting point, but it is only the first step. One of the things that I see is that mindfulness has been portrayed as if it were a spiritual path. It's not, it's a first station on a spiritual path. I saw it the other way. I but, saw it as the neutering of spiritual path by adorning it with the legitimacy of a scientific neuroscientist seal of approval, mindfulness, as opposed right. to good old fashioned meditation. Right, I think there's truth in that too. I really think there's truth in that too because mindfulness had been stripped out of a whole system, yeah, which was a spiritual or is a spiritual system and be made into something for stress reduction. Well, if you want to have a buzzkill in, in, in a dinner party, tell them your, your two interests are religion and politics. <laughs> and oh, no, say I, the word God and say the no, word God. That has changed, Ralph. That has changed. Okay. It right. used to be that the G word yes. was something that you didn't dare mention in polite company. Right. And I can say that from my experience and the experience of the people that I work with, that has changed. Yeah, but maybe I, they see you coming. Maybe, <laughs> maybe they, they're just polite, you know. <laughs> they weren't telling you. The, no, because the other part of that is, you know, I was going to write a book at one point called God is a four-letter word. Yeah. Right? Because it, it really, um, in a rational society, in a secular rational society, which has given us an enormous amount of things, it is woohoo is a yeah. word you keep hearing about spirituality. But, oh, it's woohoo. But, but you're setting up a straw man because this rational society has given us so much has also given us a tremendous amount of dissatisfaction. True, absolutely. And the sense of dissatisfaction and grievance that people have because life is not working for so many people right. is needs to be factored in. The sense of, yes, it's given us so much. And if you rely on it as your source of meaning and, and the fullness of your worldview, it's going to be very unsatisfying. It's not going to speak to your heart. Yeah. And and that's a major pillar of what I think about is the sense of the inner uh, being fundamental to the human experience and, and human fulfillment and sense of satisfaction, sense of joy, sense of juiciness and, and, and deliciousness of life. And so being purely rational, that's really good for the trains running on time and for you know, being able to order things online and et cetera, et cetera. It's great. It's wonderful. It's a gift. I can't make the meaning of my life that because it's not true and it doesn't satisfy. We also live surrounded by a cult of desire. Yes. I mean, in, 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 a, in the system that we set up, 
the material world, but it's even spiritual materialism, people who yes. are doing a buffet of shopping for God. I'll do a little Musar, I'll do a little Buddhism, I'll do a little Hindu. I'll do, and, you know, not, I always, as well as saying what I say about spirituality, I, I see religion as, as, if done properly, a good fitness program, mm -hmm. right? It's like a gymnasium for the soul. And when I see Musar, I see definitely that there, because I could literally each week say I'm going to do uh, moderation, truth, generosity, silence, enthusiasm, pick one of these things and really for the week, focus on a, on a statement at the beginning of a day and then take note and activate that idea of, of, of uh, moderation, that idea of generosity. Um, and then at the end of the day, just scribble down some notes, you know, mm -hmm. and I know that, as you've said in, in your writings, there are people, you know, I didn't really have time, I couldn't really do it. And it's just like, it, it takes 14 seconds to write the note. You know, I was writing about honor. And all of a sudden, I found myself writing about the, each person that I felt that I had gone out of my way to honor in that day. And, and then there's a thing I do in my workshops that I learned from uh, Rabbi Nadia Gross. Uh, where she writes an oh my god letter to students, or, uh, to family, I should say. Uh, and she was talking to us about aging and, 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 and turning that into saging. And she said, you know, if you write a letter, she said, I have written letters to each of my four children and my husband. And if, if, if God forbid, it, that somebody walks into a room and goes, your mother just died. I have to tell you, your mother just died. The first thing would be, oh my god go to the filing cabinet or the email, open it up and see what they wanted to tell you in case they didn't get to say goodbye. And in doing that, the person animates something in them that makes them want to talk to that person in life while they're still here and realize that they have not said certain things and they don't want to leave them unsaid. Mm -hmm. So it's brought it up in consciousness. And when I think of the Musar curriculum, I realized this is about the bringing forward of unrealized and unconscious flows and ebbs of happiness and unhappiness in your life. Right. And, and maybe learning something by watching the ebb and the flow and say, what's this trying to teach me? What, what, what lessons available for me here now? Because it is really true that one of the incredible things about human beings is our malleability. You know that we are very flexible, and we can we can uh, accommodate many many different sorts of circumstances. We can live from you know the North Pole to the South Pole, and 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 be adaptable to environments and so on. And we change. You know, your work in aging is based on the premise that as we go through the life cycle, we're not the same as we used to be, and we change, and we have to learn about that and develop that. The whole Musser approach is say, let's make that a conscious process and let's make it work towards the ideals. If we're changing, well, what if we set certain objectives for ourselves as the best possible change that we can come up with towards ideals? And you mentioned the fact that we live in a culture of material desires. Well, take a look at that, make a conscious decision. Is that where I want to orient my life? Or do I have an, another set of goals that are higher priority to me? Or spend a week with simplicity. Yes. As one of the midot and just, you know, and just say, 
I love that little story in, in the in the book of, you know, the seeing the rabbi's place with nothing in it, and he's just like, "Well, you don't have any furniture." Uh, you know, what about you? You don't have any either. I'm just passing through, and well, so am I. <laughs> it's a great story. It's a great story. There's so it's many great, great stories story. in there. It, so, it reframes, and I think that's a lot of what we're talking about. It reframes what we're what what's actually going on for us. So it accepts this is my experience right now, but let me see it through a different lens. So it's not saying you should be having a different experience right now. It's not saying that. It's like, let's look deeper into the right. experience you're having and then say, let, let's learn from that and orient it. You were talking about sort of, well, maybe I was hearing you more than you were talking about, it, about Musa being situated within a larger framework, which is Judaism. Right. And that what happens is that the, it's very hard for a human being, I think, to really have enough experience to identify what are the uh, highest possibilities of a human life. I think that's a collective enterprise that evolves and refines over many centuries through experience. And so it might look like having the latest model car or the most expensive handbag or, you know, it, we may live in a certain world which defines certain things. But when you take it back into the perspective and the context of centuries of exploration, it may not look so important anymore. There may be something else that's a higher possibility for a human being. I was talking to my Muslim teacher, Rabbi Pear, not too long ago, and he said, do you know that it's possible to get your casket painted in the colors of your favorite te uh, sports team? And I said, you're kidding. <laughs> he said, check it out. <laughs> and the truth is you can ha have your casket painted in the colors of the Dallas Cowboys or the Vancouver Canucks yeah. or the Boston Celtics or whatever is your favorite or your college team or whatever. And God forbid, a child can have their coffin painted in Disney themes. Right. And if you're doubting me, now we have the access to all information at our fingertips. I do not doubt you. Them. I do not No, you could. You. This is so far out that I think you could doubt me and I wouldn't blame you. <laughs> but it's true. And you know what? There's, in my estimation, there's nothing wrong with sports. Something, there's a lot of things that are really good about sports. But that should not be the highest aspiration so that when you go to your eternal resting place, you are identified as an eternal fan of some professional sports team, which changes its players every three years and has no real identity. Yeah. And that this is who I am. This is this is my eternal soul. But this this is about that. What I spoke about at the beginning about the fact that we are we have to be very careful to really understand our yearnings. Mm -hmm. And that yearning is to belong. Yes. And, and, I think, and I think a lot of the insurrection and the gang issues and the white supremacy is also an issue. Of absolutely. And, and so is being a, a super fan. And so is uh, being religious without spirituality. Uh, you know, I come from a Sephardic home, a Moroccan home, where it was tradition that mattered. You know, if you ask my mother anything about any significance of the story of Passover, she'd look at you like you were nuts and just say, 
what do you care? Just make sure you do everything in the, it's a Seder, it's order, just do it in right. the right order. Right. And that would be that. And I always, you know, my Ashkenazi friends, some of them would have these freedom satyrs and it'd be so interesting and f feminist satyrs. And then I go home to mine and it's just nail it, you know, you know, like you just have to do it right. And that was that. So now we move into a place where people can make choices within their spiritual tradition and path. And in a way, the wandering that so many Jews have done into other traditions and faiths is helping to inform our ability to open ourselves up in my uh, impression of it, yeah. that, that somebody could return to Judaism and find Musar and say, now I'm open to this, as opposed to, I feel bad because I don't do everything the right way. Right. Uh, I feel that in my own experience that had, had I not been a student of yoga with BKS Iyengar as my teacher, I wouldn't have understood Musar when I came to it. Right. Because he taught me so my wife and i would study with him in Pune in india and we would be in the same class with the same teacher doing the same yoga pose but he would give each of us a different assignment within the pose right. because i had a lot of strength in high school i played football and in the high, in university i played hockey and i had a lot of strength but i didn't have much flexibility my wife on the other hand had a tremendous amount of flexibility and lacked strength so you're doing exactly the same pose with a different purpose because you're individual and unique. Mm. Well, when I came upon the Musser tradition, I said, well, that's, that's how you do that for the inner life. Right. Like yoga was for me for the body, but this was for how do you give this? We, we're all, we all need to work on gratitude, but your need and my need are gonna be different within the, right. the, the category. And so I think that you're right. The, to my, in my experience, it wasn't just the Sephardic world that was ossified. The entire, I grew up in a very Ashkenazi family and there was very little religion, but what there was of religion was mostly being uh, put down. I mean, that they had a very negative view of this kind of, just the stuff we used to do in the old country. Right. They already saw it as meaningless. And, and then so much got thrown out, so much got, so much needed to be revivified. Right. One thing I would say about that is that not just spirituality, but this is true of religion as well, because to me, they go hand in hand. Uh, when people say, you know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, I kind of cock my head because with experience, I think a person realizes the need for both an internal and an external scaffolding one of my issues around mindfulness as a spiritual practice is that it has no ethical system attached to it. Right. Religion provides you with an ethical system. And that means that when you're becoming mindful, you're not applying it to be a better serial killer, or you're not applying it to be a, a more effective white collar criminal who can get away with it. Now, mindfulness would be a very good thing. If you're going to be a, a uh, a white collar criminal, you should be mindful. Like, be, then you're going to cover your tracks. Yeah. Mindfulness. You be very focused and clear as to exactly. your bad intention. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because there's no ethical system attached to it in its contemporary iteration. Right. Which is also a tricky mind field, too, because what was the ethic of a time is not the ethic of this time. 
And that's where I look to a more perennial ethic. And that's where the interplay of spirituality and religion comes into play. And it's also where it, the connection to neshama, to the, to the divine spark, that is the animation of the soul. And it is, it, it, as you put it, it uh, not corruptible. It's yeah. there. So to, to try to access through this practice th that, that moving of clouds into a clarity of sun is the purpose of it. That's, that's true mindfulness to me because it has a, a, a sense of purpose to it, a higher purpose to it than just, oh, I really need to calm down. It's better for me. Right, which is right. which may not be the case. There's a role for being agitated. Right, we're, we're given the gift of the capacity of agitation. I, I have a colleague I work with very closely, and he's he was quite worried about this, that, and the other thing. Now, you don't generally hear people praising worry as a spiritual quality, like, "Wow, you're really good at worry, man." <laughs> but I told him he was good at worry because it was causing him to look carefully at all the details of what he was involved in. And it was a good thing. My wife is, a, is an expert in worry because she has to take care of patients. And so she worries, did I give the right dose? Did I give the right medicine? She second guesses herself. She checks it out carefully and it's a positive thing. It's not a wringing of hands type of worry, which is a negative thing. It's a care. It's a care and, a, and, and an attention to detail. All right, let me, I've only got two minutes left with you. I could talk to you for three hours, easy, but I've got two minutes. Um, tell me about the Musar Institute. Tell me as well, because I'm interested as to what people could do to become trainers themselves in Musar. So we tell, me, tell me that stuff. We train, we call them facilitators because like spiritual directors, it is facilitating a process. It's not, you're not a trainer, but you're a facilitator of other people's discussions and, 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 and uh, processes. The Musser Institute, founded in 2004, so it's already 17 years old, is really a hub for information and for relationship. We, we had a situation a while ago where people were trying to put the Musser Institute onto a business footing, make it a more effective educational institution, and it was killing it because what we really are is a community of spiritual seekers. Mm. And you can't run a community of spiritual seekers as if it were a business without it turning into something that's, that isn't gonna be attractive even to me anymore. I won't, I won't want to belong right. to it. Commodify, commodify. It's right. just, but this is all about seeking and it's all about being companions to one another. And maybe you don't belong in the sense that there are team colors or you don't have, you know, a, a membership card. But we're belonging in, in some very long-standing fellowship. This has been around for a long time. And it may have gone underground for a while in our generation, but it had to come back because it's a fellowship that gives people the information and the companionship and the guidance and the support and the processes to fulfill a real inner longing. And the longing is there and it gives a wholesome expression to it. So we do courses and we provide information and we do translation of texts and we do training of group facilitators and we do events and retreats. And it's a 
just look at MusserInstitute.org and you'll see the fullness of the activities supported by and feeding a community. So M-U-S-S-A-R for those who don't have yeah. never heard it before, MusserInstitute.org. Uh, and a person can learn to be a, a facilitator or they can yeah. take the courses or read the, uh, the, the posts and the, and the different information. I want to thank you. I want to thank you and bless you. I bless you for the work you've already done and the work that you continue to do. I bless you for the fact that you came to this and shared it and didn't keep it to yourself and that you have had great teachers yourself that have helped you in the journey and, uh, I hope that uh, more and more people take the time to really um, move from uh, home renovation to soul renovation, mm. and do a little bit of work on their, on their soul traits with uh, great guidance. And Everyday Holiness is still a great book and one that can really help people to, even on their own, begin the path, if nothing else. I can see you're a good student of Musser because I know that your quality of this week is honor. Hmm. And you just <laughs> did a very nice job of honoring me. So in your journaling, you can go to check mark <laughs> what you got done today. Nailed that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a good one. You did yeah, a with good with great conceit, which would then ruin the entire affair. No, that's because you're not working on humility this week. You can get away with that. <laughs> I'll put it further down the list and that way I won't exactly. notice it as much. I want to thank you, Alan, very okay. much for your time. I thank you, Ralph, it. and blessings back to you. Alan Marinus, uh, not that kind of rabbi. The name of the book is Everyday Holiness. Go to uh, musarinstitute.org if you want more information. And for me, go to my Facebook page for Not That Kind of Rabbi and say hello. Uh, and uh, I wish you all a safe and uh, some mental and physical well-being in this very difficult time that we're in. Take care of each other and take care of yourselves. Bye.
podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls. Visit romephone.ca to get started.